Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Genius Foods. In this episode of the show, I'm super excited to welcome back my good friend, Chris Masterjohn, PhD. Chris is a nutritional science expert, and I consider him one of the foremost thought leaders on how to really harness the power of micronutrition for better health, for a longer life, and to just overall feel and perform better. In this episode of the show, we're going to go deep into um, a few topics. We're going to talk a little bit about the value of riboflavin and why if you are exercising vigorously or on a fat loss diet, you likely need to get more riboflavin in your diet. And some of the benefits of doing so include having better skin. He's going to talk all about why that is. We also talk a bit about collagen. I think this is the first episode on the show where we uh, go deep into collagen and why uh, Dr. Master John is a big fan of um, collagen supplementation in certain contexts. And we also talk about iron deficiency anemia, which a lot of people suffer from, and why you know reaching an optimal iron status isn't always as easy as taking an iron supplement. So um, this is a super interesting episode and one that I have a feeling you are going to want to come back to again and again. And just before we plunge into it, uh, just a heads up that we did run out of um, space on the memory card of my podcast recording um, device. Uh, Maybe like I don't know, 15, 16 minutes into the episode, and I'm going to give you a heads up uh, where we sort of uh, come back and rejoin um, the discussion. So hopefully it's not too abrupt, but I just wanted to give you guys a heads up. And before we get into it, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show, and that is Ned. Ned makes among the highest quality CBD products I've ever seen, and in a time when CBD Uh, infused products seem to be everywhere. I was in a deli in New York uh, this past week and I saw CBD infused water and even at checkout they had CBD infused gummies which were super overpriced and loaded with high fructose corn syrup among other junk. It's great to know that a company like Ned is basically putting forward a super clean product of full spectrum CBD immersed in a medium of pure MCT oil. In fact the product is so clean you can actually taste uh, the plant that it comes from and I do take comfort in knowing that there is virtually no THC in the product, which is great because I personally don't like THC, but I am curious about the um, the the science surrounding CBD. And you know, many people are using CBD now for anxiety relief and sleep um, and the like. So if you'd like to try CBD for the first time, I recommend heading over to helloned.com and using promo code Genius to save 15% off of your first order. Again, helloned.com and you will get to say 15% off of your first order. And I've had um, other guests on the show, Crosby Taylor, uh, the guys from Mind Pump, and they're all big fans of uh, using Ned um, you know, as their primary uh, source of CBD. So, and I plan to do a deep, and I've done uh, actually previously uh, an entire episode about the science surrounding CBD. So if you wanna check that out, you can go back through the, um, you know, the backlog. But in any case, uh, helloned.com, Promo code Genius, you'll get to say 15% off of very high quality uh, and clean CBD oil. Now, we're just seconds away from the episode with Dr. Master John, 
we're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, a what's it called a cheat sheet that he created that's going to help you ascertain any nutritional deficiencies. Uh, so we get into a little bit of that. But before we dive in, guys, please take a moment to support The Genius Life. You can do that by leaving a rating and review for the show on iTunes, which I would really appreciate. I read all of them. Or by joining my newsletter at maxlugavir.com. All you got to do is enter your first and last name. And uh, every week or so, I send out a handwritten newsletter designed to improve your life. In fact, when you first sign up, you're going to get a um, list of 12 supplements that you can potentially use to boost your brain function. And... Um, I, you know, I'm excited for you to check that out. Again, maxlugavir.com. Join my newsletter. I would appreciate that very much. All right, guys, without further ado, I'm excited to get uh, into this chat with the one and only Chris Masterjohn, PhD. Round two, Max and Masterjohn. Sounds good. Dude, you're one of my favorite um, guys in the space uh, for many reasons. I mean, it's just like, you know, I could listen to you talk for hours. Um, you just, you know so much about nutrition and micronutrients and macronutrients and but I also feel like in the nutrition space, there's a lot of like condescension and um, and dogma, and you're not really. You seem to be kind of like like above all that. I don't know. Like, do you do you do you get a lot of like the um, like nutrition Twitter? I feel like there's a lot of like I don't know. Uh, there's like a big call out culture. That I've been wanting to talk about a bit lately, like people are like calling one another out, and it's just like to me, it sounds very unproductive, and condescending, and just like negative. Um, but you're not, you know, you're you're just like consistently out there, like putting good information out into the world. So, you know, thanks for that. Yeah, I think I think that has a lot to do with my personality, and probably just reflects on my nutrition work. So I think looking back to when I was a kid, like I was never really into for for example team sports like i there were sports that i liked and i played on sports but i never was able to get into rooting for a team hmm. and so there were times where i would go fanatically to sports teams but it was because i knew the people in them so i was a substitute teacher after high school for a while and i would go to all the basketball games because i knew the students and it was meaningful to me to go to the games and i would cheer for the home team but only because I knew those people. When I was in when I was in graduate school, I lived with an MVP soccer player, so I went to his games and cheered for his teams. But we also had Super Bowl parties at the house that I lived in, hmm. and I could never understand why anyone cared who won the Super Bowl. Hmm. Um, and it's because you know I just because of my personality type, I'm very good at brainstorming many possibilities and developing my own inner model of what those possibilities mean in a coherent whole. Mm. And I just don't attach myself to firm static ideas. I think saying I'm on this team or I'm on that team is directly contradictory to what my primary skill set is, which is seeing new possibilities and new ways of seeing things, right? Mm. So I think people value me um, I don't even think, you know, I strive really hard to be objective, but I don't think that my primary skill set is to bring objectivity. I think I do give a sense of objectivity by not attaching myself to tribal tribalisms of low carb or low fat or keto or carnivore or paleo or South Beach or whatever, you know, yeah. whatever, whatever uh, tribe you have. And I think I do make a tribe out of that. Like the tribe that rises above the tribes. Yeah. And it's still a tribe, right? Like, and there's still, you know, I, 
I am vulnerable to call out culture because I call out people for tribalism. Hmm. That's my tribe, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so I think there's, there's a very instinctive part of human nature that has to have a tribe and has to belong to a tribe. Mm-hmm. And so I'm probably vulnerable to tricking myself into believing that I don't hmm. because my tribe is the one that looks down on the tribes that identify as tribes, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the, at the end of the day, we, we need to come to a table together. Like it's real easy to see the, the people in call out culture, um, you know, look down on them and say like, that's not how you do things. You have no value. I have the value over here. But in reality, I think the fact that we're calling each other out on that and then calling each other out for being call outs and all yeah, that. Yeah. It's just something that's <clears throat> that stops us from coming to the table and we need some way to bridge that communication because, you know, some people just what they bring is they hold on to this perspective that gets so easily lost. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things we see in nutrition science is like um, people that cling to the scientific method, they see no value in holding on to the perspective of where we came from. And so they they don't understand why we should look at ancestral health because they're like that that's in the past why would i limit my possibilities of what i can discover with what my ancestors 10,000 years ago did and then there are other people who are who they specialize in holding on to that perspective this is like the weston a price crowd hmm. where they're not really synthesizing it with science in the sense that they're not that open to new ideas there are other people that do merge those like the um not even the paleo community, but the academic ancestral health people, like mm. the people that run ancestral health symposium. Mm. I think what they've done is try to bridge that gap where they say, we're going to have a dialogue between science and between these perspectives of where we came from. And we're going to use that as a means of developing in scientific insights about where we're going mm. by synthesizing that understanding of where we came from. But if there weren't people like in the Weston A. Price crowd who were like, no, the hunter-gatherers, no, the hunter-gatherers, no, the hunter-gatherers, and, and, and no, what my grandma ate, no, what my grandma ate, no, yeah. what my grandma ate. The scientific people would never come to the table. they just forget about that perspective and move on, right? Yeah. So what we really need is to bridge the gap and say like, hey, hold on a second. Stop, stop calling me out. I'll stop calling you out. What is this thing that you care so deeply about? How can we... How can I fit that into my perspective and use that as fuel to churn my seeing of new possibilities and new ways of understanding things? Yeah, I like, I mean, I like your attitude because it's inclusive. Yeah. You know, you have a a term that you use to call out um, people on the internet that are, I I like to use the phrase evidence uh, bound as opposed to being evidence based. Um, You know, they're, they're, they just seem so close off to new ideas and, um, you know, any utterance of like an anecdote, you know, they basically shrug off as being meaningless data, but you've actually called them out and you have a term for them. Yeah. I call these guys EBITs uh, or evidence-based internet trolls. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, this is probably an example of me engaging in call-out culture, but I think, I, I think it was important to, so I, I made a couple posts that were mainly meant to be funny and to be amusing to people who were like, rah, 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 I've been <laughs> wanting to hate on these people and I've never had an opportunity yet. Now I can do it because I have a name. And I, I think it's I think it's important to I think it was important to put a name to that because it's a it's a phenomenon that so easily passes for for the evidence basedness that it claims to be, but isn't, right? So what these people are doing is 
they're using evidence-based medicine approaches as a veneer for cloaking their closed-mindedness. And if you read, there's a great article that we should link to in the show notes called Evidence-Based Medicine Was Hijacked. Hmm. And uh, I believe it was by John Ioannidis, who's the same guy that got famous with, um, what was it? The major- I forget the exact name. It was something like the majority, 80% of all scientific findings are false or something like that. Hmm. Um, but but he, you know, he goes on, he, in there he cites um, some articles written by the founders of evidence-based medicine and clarifying what it is. And evidence-based medicine was never meant, so... To, to clarify for people who haven't heard of it, evidence-based medicine is this idea that you can make a pyramid of all the different kinds of evidence. And at the bottom, you have th- low-quality evidence like animal experiments and, um, and observational studies. And in the middle, you have you know, developing a basic understanding of how things work and developing you know, treat- treatments that seem to have an effect. And at the top, you have the highest quality evidence, which is at the almost top, you have large randomized controlled trials. And at the very top, you have uh, meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials and systematic reviews of all the evidence below it. And so the idea is that the, the, the idea is that the gold standard of evidence is the randomized controlled trial and nothing beats synthesizing all the randomized controlled trials into one big conclusion, right? And so this pyramid isn't really what evidence-based medicine is. It's it's the pyra- it's a pyramid that deals with one aspect of evidence-based medicine, which is what's the best evidence for developing a cause and effect understanding of, of what works as a treatment. Hmm. But evidence-based medicine goes beyond that. And if you look at, um, if, if you look at, uh, I forget the, the name of the article, but I'll, I'll give you the link so we can put it in the show notes. Yeah. But um, there's a, I think uh, Sackett was his name. He was one of the founders of evidence-based medicine. And um, he, he wrote an article about what it really is. And he discussed many forms of evidence that we never talk about that, that, are, that are very, that are legitimate for making inferences from an evidence-based medicine perspective. So for example, um, a longitudinal study of a patient cohort is completely observational, but it's critical evidence about prognosis. For example, someone gets cancer, like what's the likelihood that they're going to live or die or what's the outcome gonna be over five or 10 years? That's absolutely evidence that you need to have. Um, and you don't do that in a randomized controlled t- trial. You do that by observing what happens, right, right. right? It's totally observational, but totally a valid form of inference. And p- people, a lot of people, I mean, that goes down all the way to an anecdote. So people will drag up this, I don't remember where it comes from, that this saying, um, there's one that's like the plural of anecdote is data. And um, I don't know, pe- people dismiss anecdotes, but look, a single anecdote shows you something really important. It shows you that whatever happened in that anecdote is consistent with reality, and it apparently happened. Yeah, that's like that's really useful information, right? <laughs> and um, and then uh, many anecdotes, you know, start to give you a general picture of possibilities of things that can happen. So some people get caught in dismissing anecdotes and saying that they're meaningless, which is which is absurd. You know how you know how many you know what proportion of stuff that we know and and act on relies on anecdote, like when I go out of this apartment, there's going to be a, a paved street outside. 
I rely on that for my life <laughs> because of millions of anecdotes, right? Yeah. Like this is survival related information. Like anyone who claims that they rely on randomized controlled trials for most of the things that they do, I challenge you to sit down and make an objective analysis of that. You maybe rely on RCTs for 1% of what you do. Mm-hmm. And 99% of what you do, you rely on stories and anecdotes. It's not low, like it's low quality evidence for, to, to, people are just mismatching their inferences, right? Like it's it, someone on the internet saying that they, that they cured their cancer with kale juice uh, that's a real low quality a- evidence to to say, okay, we're going to start treating cancer with kale juice. But Alexa has strong feelings about this. <laughs> yeah, she does. Um, but but so much so much of what we do, there are no RCTs on, and and there is such a strength of consistent experience that you just rely on that, right? And so I think that. Um, I mean to get to take it back to the ebits uh we have we have these people that are basically they're borrow they're in a very narrow minded way they're borrowing this top of the pyramid of one part of evidence based medicine that is about how do we determine that something with the safety profile of a typical drug is good enough to say that this is going to be the standard of treatment Right? And to become the standard of treatment basically means you're telling all the doctors that when they have serious choices to make, they should do this without even thinking about it. Not without thinking about it, but you know, as a default position, that's what they do. Um, and that's very different from most of the decisions that you make, right? Like if I'm gonna make a decision like, oh, I feel a little wheezy, should I take some glutathione that's in my cupboard mm-hmm. i don't need an rct for that because what's the what's the downside risk of me taking that that glutathione well right. i spent a little money on it right that like that, but that's my choice right and if so if i want to use mechanistic reasoning to say well wheezing is a symptom of asthma and we know that asthmatics have really low glutathione levels and that glutathione makes an endogenous bronchodilator in the lungs and i feel like spending 12 dollars on this supplement to keep it there when i start wheezing and it seems like when i take a thousand milligrams of this glutathione my wheezing goes away <laughs> like for for me not to be able to say that that happened and that if other people want to try it there's no clear you know, there's no RCT showing that it helps with wheezing, but yeah. hey, why not have it in your cupboard? Yeah. Like for you to come and 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 bombard me with all the limitations of that evidence as if I'm a quack for making that observation, that's that makes you an evidence-based internet troll, right? <laughs> because you are distorting the whole concept of evidence and evidence-based medicine to troll me. Yeah. And you have nothing, there's nothing else that you're achieving except your feeling of superiority <laughs> and you're gaining your tribe based on your trolling of people. Right. And, uh, you know, a great, to take, to take this to like a, a very common thing, I think the perfect example of spotting an EBIT are these memes that come out that say, um, you want to detoxify have a liver, right? And we we talked about this <laughs> yes, last time, right? Yeah. And so and so you you and I are 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 largely in agreement on this, I think, right? There's a very legitimate criticism of all the BS 
in yes. the detox market. Like mm-hmm. there's tons of people wasting tons of money on tons of things that are ridiculous, right? Right, right, right. But there's a legitimate science yes. to to how nutrition impacts what your liver does because your liver does the detoxing with those with those nutritional things, a right? Percent. And so and so um and so closing off the discussion as uh as like this, you know, this is this thing we know, and anyone who says anything outside of it is a quack. Like that's that's an that's an EBIT thing to do, right? And so we we need to, you know, and this comes back to the tribalism, right? Like we can we are in control of what we make our tribe out of, right? So I think we need to we need to make frame the conversation where we don't make our tribe by exploding the most base instincts of human nature that fuel tribalism, right? Mm-hmm. Like we cannot transcend having a tribe. That's just so human nature, right? But we've seen through human history that some tribes are built on war. Some tribes are just built on like, that person's someone other than we are. We're gonna go <clears throat> kill all the men, rape all the women and take over that town. Mm. That was very popular at one time, and yeah. somehow, somehow we do things a little differently now because of our <laughs> ideas, right? We have tribes of like that person's skin color is different than me. I'm gonna vote them all to go back home. Right. We have to like that's all of that is the same instinct of human nature that wants to draw lines in the sand and say us versus them, and we need that to have a sense of belonging. But we can u- utilize ideas of inclusiveness, utilize ideas of dialogue. All right, guys, now this is the place where we ran out of memory, so we're going to switch topics a little bit and uh, go from talking about EBITs to Chris's nutritional, hacking your nutritional status cheat sheet, um, and then go into riboflavin and iron and collagen and all the good stuff. So enjoy. So um, yeah, for listeners that um, that call you on the last uh, episode of the podcast, you offer this incredible tool. It's a, a micronutrient um, assessment cheat sheet that people can pick up um, allows them to assess whether or not they are in a positive or, or negative nutrient status and it allows them to bring it into their doctors or, or what? How does it work? Yeah, so it's called Testing Nutritional Status, the Ultimate Cheat Sheet and it's something that an individual can use for themselves or can use in conjunction with their doctor. It's also something that a doctor or another healthcare practitioner can use uh, with their patients. And uh, in fact, a lot of people use it to order their, they order their own tests direct to consumer, like directlabs.com and things like that. Um, although, you know, I, I do recommend that you always have someone that reviews your testing um, who's, a, who's a healthcare pro- professional. But um, in any case, it's basically a system to walk you through assessing what your resources available to you are. Do you have more time? Do you have more money? Is one limiting or the other? And it gives you three approaches. One's the time-saving approach, one's the cost-saving approach, and one's the comprehensive approach. And it walks you through collecting your data. That's both laboratory data, also signs and symptoms. There's an enormous index with 180 signs and symptoms that can relate to nutritional deficiencies, toxicities, or imbalances. So going through the checklist of signs and symptoms and teaching you how to do a proper dietary analysis and then you combine this data and it directs you how to interpret it. You read certain sections. So this thing is 78 pages long. You can probably get away, you can probably do this whole thing reading six pages of it because your data directs you what section to read. 
helps you develop an action protocol and then gives you ways to monitor whether that action protocol is effective. Wow. So it's uh, basically a comprehensive way of managing nutritional status, but condensed into as little work as you can do given the resources that you have in order to get actionable results. It's so awesome. Um, and we have a code that we can offer to uh, to my listeners, right, if they want to go and pick that up. Yeah, uh, for 20% off, go to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash genius and use the coupon, coupon code genius at checkout for 20% off. So important, you guys. Chris is my go-to expert when it comes to uh, micronutrients and deficiencies and things like that. Speaking of micro, micronutrients, I've seen you tweeting a lot lately about um, one in particular called riboflavin, which... Uh, I don't know. I feel like the, what, what I gather from it is that it's, it's pretty important when it comes to fat loss, which I know is a big topic for my listeners. Yeah. So it's not going to make you lose more fat, but it is something that your needs go up when you're losing fat. And so it's going to protect your skin health and it's going to protect your general health uh, from the perspective of keeping you young and healthy. Hmm. So riboflavin is important in energy metabolism, especially fat burning. You need twice as much riboflavin to burn fat as you do to burn carbs. But it's also important in antioxidant defense, which is what protects your tissues from wear and tear over time as you age. So the risk of developing degenerative diseases, chronic diseases when you age, and just the risk of your skin health declining and you your joints joint health declining and you feeling older that all relates back to antioxidant protection mm-hmm. of protecting your tissues from wear and tear as you age. Now, in the short term, uh, producing energy is more important than protecting your tissues from wear and tear over the next 30 or 40 years. Right. And if you need to burn fat because that's what's available for you to burn and you need to produce ATP to fuel everything, including antioxidant defense in your body, your body will prioritize being able to produce energy in the moment over protecting your tissues from wear and tear over time. So what happens is if you burn more fat, you take riboflavin out of antioxidant defense and you put riboflavin in fat burning. Hmm. If you have enough riboflavin, you'll cover both. But if you're limited in how much riboflavin you have, you cover fat burning. And so one of the ways to do that is to eat a high fat diet. But another way to do that is to lose weight. Right? When you lose weight, you're trying to lose fat. There's no way that you can, it doesn't matter if you're eating carbs or not. There's no way you can lose that fat without burning fat because that's what you have to do to, to lose fat is to burn the fat, right? right, right. And so if you're, if you're losing weight, if you're actively losing weight, your riboflavin needs go up 60%. Now get this, if you're exercising, especially if you're doing cardio, this, is, this has mostly been studied in the context of doing 20 to 50 minutes of cardio five to six days a week. So imagine you're on a diet and then you're, you're hitting the gym and doing 30 minutes of cardio every day. That's, this is that category. The exercise alone increases your needs for riboflavin by 60%. Wow. So if you're dieting and you're doing cardio five days a week, and I'll say, you know, there's other, obviously there's other forms of exercise other than cardio. The thing is we don't, what I would expect is that they all make your riboflavin requirement go up, but not as much as cardio, and I don't know what the numbers are. Hmm. And that's just because riboflavin is used for burning any energy, hmm. but it's but it's double in fat burning, and cardio burns more fat than other forms do. Like if you're doing short-term high-intensity intervals, you're gonna burn more glycogen in your muscles, you're gonna, you're gonna blow through more creatine and stuff like that, right? Um, so I don't know what the numbers are, but any 
any exercise is going to increase riboflavin needs. But let's just keep it where we do know the numbers, right? So someone's dieting to lose weight and they're doing five, they're doing five or six days of 30 minutes of cardio. Their riboflavin needs are going up 60% plus 60%. That's 120%. So riboflavin needs are basically 2.2 fold what they were before they started dieting and exercise. Whoa. Guess what happened to their riboflavin intake? What happened? It went down went because down. they're eating less food. Oh man! Right? Yeah. So you're. I mean, there's this myth out there that you know the nutrients are just in whatever food you have. That as long as you eat whole foods, you'll get enough of the nutrients because like, because like there's more carb burning nutrients in carbs, there's more fat burning nutrients in fat, and like that's not true. Like sometimes your needs just deviate from your intake, and this is one clear case where that is. Hmm. Like you're when you. When you restrict your food, you eat less riboflavin and need more. Right. So the only way around that is to increase the riboflavin density of your food by eating more riboflavin-rich foods. What are those? So riboflavin-rich foods are at the top of this list. We have things like liver. We have That's like things, one of your favorite foods. <laughs> yeah. We have things like uh, kidney, hearts, almonds, mushrooms, seaweed. Um, and then everything else is, is, is like... Uh, is below that right and so like uh red meat egg yolks and uh red meat egg yolks cheese and salmon are also very high and then like you go down the foods and you're just like everything else is is uh you can create you know tier three tier four tier five but it's 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 very low compared to those foods and the thing is like if you're a quote-unquote health conscious dieter and you're not eating red meat you're not eating cheese you're not eating egg yolks and then you're just like a human being in the 20th century. You're not eating liver. You're not eating kidney. You're not eating heart. Um, and then, you know, throw vegan on top of that, right? <laughs> like um, you don't have to meet many criteria to be the kind of people that are not eating red meat, egg yolk, salmon, cheese as most of your food. And I'm not talking about eating uh, red meat three times a week. That's yeah. not going to hit your riboflavin requirement. I'm right. talking about eating, you know, selecting from those foods multiple times a day, right? And so it's just many people are not eating riboflavin-rich foods to begin with, and then they throw on top of it all these assaults on riboflavin status like dieting, exercise. Chronic cardio, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and then there's other things you can't even control, like MTHFR status. If you have mm. MTHFR polymorphisms that hurt your methylation, um, those increase your, those double your riboflavin requirement. They do. Yeah. I thought I thought that that was really only um, that the implication was really only that you needed needed to pay more attention to your folate. No. So this is the interesting thing. Um, this and this is one of the things that me and Alex Leaf in the po- big 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 podcast we did on riboflavin discovered pretty recently. Although it's a finding that's been in the literature for years, and other people have talked about it. Uh, ben Lynch, who talks a lot about methylation, has talked about it in his book. Um, the MTHFR polymorphisms. So MTHFR is an enzyme that uses folate to support the, which is vitamin B9, to support the process of methylation, which is essential to mental and physical health. And even though it's an enzyme that uses folate to make methylfolate, which then interacts with vitamin B12 to support methylation, MTHFR is a riboflavin-dependent enzyme. It has riboflavin attached to it. In biochemistry, we call it a prosthetic group. It's sort of like you know, if you have a, a prosthetic joint, it's part of you, right? Mm-hmm. It never leaves. Right. In biochemistry, it's the same concept. You may have a vitamin that is the, a prosthetic group of an enzyme. That means it's this, it's 
structurally is part of the enzyme. It never leaves. If it does, the enzyme is not going to work, right? So even though MTHFR is, is modifying folate to make the methyl group, a key part of itself is riboflavin. Hmm. And what happens, what happens to lower MTHFR activity if you have one of these common polymorphisms, like the C677T1, that is the most famous one. When people go around saying, I have MTHFR, yeah, we all do, but what they mean is they have this polymorphism, right? That polymorphism, the way it lowers MTHFR activity is to lower its binding affinity for riboflavin. Hmm. That means it holds on to riboflavin less tightly. That means it's sort of like um, if you were a dude with a prosthetic knee yeah. and uh, something made that knee fall out, <laughs> having MTHFR C677T is like being that dude. Wow. Your riboflavin falls out. Hmm. So I feel so that if you're one of the you know the non-trivial proportion of the population that has this mutation, would you then I mean t- take uh, methylfolate as a supplement, or is the is it is so it, I actually are you have yeah I actually have a whole protocol for this at chrismastery.phd.com/methylation. But hmm. the first thing in the protocol is to get an extra 1.6 milligrams of riboflavin a day. Wow, which is slightly more than doubling the requirement. Hmm. Right, so you, you start out with your requirement somewhere around 1.3 milligrams. You have MTHFR. Now you add 1.6 to that, so you're basically up to three milligrams. You are dieting and exercising. You're adding another like milligram, milligram and a half as a result of that, and then throw on top of that you like to go sunbathing. That destroys riboflavin in your blood, um, and uh, and uh, and so you know your, your riboflavin requirement is probably up to five milligrams by now. Wow. So you mentioned riboflavin. Um, it's important for skin health. Yeah. Um, and would love to learn more about that. But then also another thing that I've learned about you about uh, in regard to riboflavin is that it's important for the utilization of iron yeah. in the body. So you can actually be in like iron deficiency anemic, but that would be that could potentially be the result of not having enough riboflavin as opposed to oh, not yeah. having enough iron. Oh yeah. And you know how many women are out there who tried iron supplements for years and their iron never moved, but when they started eating liver, all of a sudden their iron went up. Hmm. And there's not that much iron in liver. There's a, there's, there is a good, a very good amount of highly absorbable iron in liver, but you're still only hitting like a third of the RDA for a man hmm. when you eat a serving of liver. Hmm. <laughs> and so, and the RDA for women is, is uh, more than double for men. So like, no, no one, no woman is like moving from not hitting the RDA for iron to hitting the RDA for iron by eating liver. What they're doing is they're supplying copper and they're supplying riboflavin and they're supplying other nutrients that are really key to improving iron absorption. And yeah, I mean that's just the that's the the, the straight up truth here is um, riboflavin is needed to absorb iron properly. It's needed to utilize iron to make hemoglobin. And there are a number of studies showing both that riboflavin on its own. Is can improve iron status in iron deficient women, and riboflavin in a micronutrient cocktail improves iron status better than um, better than iron alone. And I'll tell you, like whenever I talk about riboflavin and anemia, there's always women popping up in the comments saying exactly what I just told you before that they tried iron supplements for years and nothing ever worked until they started eating liver. And I'm sure that riboflavin is part of that picture yeah i mean it could also be that iron supplements usually are not a very bioavailable source of iron right well it's it part of it is that iron supplements suck but um but it's it's got to be more it's got to be more than that i mean i mean first of all 
Um, iron supplements suck, but they don't suck because they're not absorbable. They suck because they are in a form that's going to cause oxidative stress in the intestines, feed mm. pathogenic bacteria in the intestines, and so they have a really high risk of GI side effects. Oof. I think that's why they suck. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of women don't take them because like the compliance is very low because the side effect profile is so high. Oh, wow. Um, and so that that's one of the reasons why they're not effective, but they're definitely like you definitely can absorb the iron in them. And so if you're taking like 18 milligrams of iron uh, as a supplement and that's not doing what three milligrams of iron in liver does, hmm. it's there has to be more. It's The bioavailability of supplements is not that bad to, to, to make that. I mean, it would have to be, um, it would it would have to be like thirty times worse than the bioavailability of natural iron, and that just can't right. be the case. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's that. Um, you asked about skin health. So, one thing that we know in riboflavin deficiency, and we're talking severe deficiency, is that there's a char- characteristic greasy eczema. It's a dermatitis, it's red, greasy, itchy skin that tends to, uh, probably the most riboflavin specific characteristic is cracking at the corners of the mouths. And I'm going to guess that that's, I think this is kind of like bleeding gums and scurvy. Like it's, it's so sensitive that some people, a lot of people have, and they don't even realize it. And it probably is the first thing to like that. Ha- that started happening to happening to me this year. I noticed the corners of my mouths were cracking, so I immediately started taking some riboflavin, and I went away. Wow! And I, I just know, like at first, I didn't notice it. Like I just noticed the the corners of my mouth felt a little more like stiff, and so I didn't think too much about it. And I noticed it over three days getting worse, and so I was like, hmm, riboflavin. Took some riboflavin, <laughs> boom, gone. Wow! Um, but when riboflavin deficiency gets really bad. It starts. Um, it starts going down your smile lines, like the line, the wrinkles in your face that you start getting in your twenties from smiling so much, <laughs> and it starts uh, getting on your eyelids and your ears and the outside parts of your nostrils and in your genitals. Wow. Um, and uh, and in some people, they can develop what they call shark skin, which is little tiny bubbles on their skin, and it's like it's not. It looks clearly different from acne, and I. I saw this in the city. I was at a Whole Foods, I think it was in Tribeca, and I saw this girl at the counter. Like, I, I couldn't bring myself to say, have you checked your riboflavin status? But she just had bubbles all over her face. Wow. And did the, she must have been beating herself up over this every day, like, you know, because, like, skin problems on your face, just, like, we all feel bad about it. Like, we feel yeah. bad when we have a zit on our nose, you know? Yeah. Um, just because of the, we just worry the hell out of the social consequences. And I'm like, oh, man. If I could just sneak like riboflavin into that girl's <laughs> coffee or something, like I bet you that would go away, you know. Um, I would never do that, but but um, uh, but you know the other so that that's the characteristic thing of deficiency. But the other side of the equation is skin health is just takes a lot of energy to maintain, and riboflavin is so critical to energy metabolism, and skin health is so assaulted by the environment. You know, like the, we have no quality control over what our skin and our gut experiences. All the quality control lies at the interface where those things act as a barrier to the rest of our body, hmm. right? And it's sort of like if you were at war and someone positioned you on the front lines, you're like, man, they want me to die to protect the officers in the back, you know? Like the the the, the skin and gut is at the front lines. Like you're not trying to kill it, but you are sacrificing it. And that's why those are the two places where you have cells dying and leaving all the time, 
Like this, the absorptive cells on the on the tips of the villi in the small intestine where you absorb all your food, they last their lifespan at the top of the finger like projections where you absorb your food is three to four days. Wow. They fall off, go in your feces, and um, and then you just put new cells up there. Your hmm. skin cells are you're exfoliating all the time, right? Yeah. Especially if you use an exfoliating cream and you, you realize how much dead skin is like. Everything at the top of your skin is dead. I don't, I don't remember what the turnover is, but it's every day there's like cells that are just flaking off. And um, that's way higher turnover than what's on the inside of your body because those are the two locations where you're just assaulted by everything, right? Mm. And so antioxidant protection against just all the negative things that you're exposed to all the time is also really critical for your skin health. And I think also, um, you know, it intersects with things that support collagen turnover are good for your skin health, and that's because you need to replace collagen that's been damaged through oxidative stress. Hmm. Well, another way to lower, another way to protect against that is to prevent the oxidative stress that damages the collagen, right? And so I think that they're, they're on the side of riboflavin deficiency, that's one place, you know, the, the, like the, the cracks at the corner of your mouth is like where you're getting into that land. Mm-hmm. But then in the opposite place, you, we need enough riboflavin to protect against oxidative stress. And the thing is, like, remember, you you always sacrifice long-term priorities for short-term priorities because, by definition, the short-term priorities are what you need right now. Yeah. Right. And um, and so, because oxidative stress is the long-term priority, um, it's always the thing that gets sacrificed when you have a short-term priority like supporting methylation demand and supporting um, anti- and supporting uh, fat metabolism and basic energy metabolism. So I think that, you know, there's going to be that thing where like you're doing chronic cardio and you're doing chronic dietary restriction and you're just like your eyes are sagging and you're, you're, you're taking collagen supplements and nothing's getting better and it's because you just have this chronic load of oxidative stress you're not addressing. And riboflavin is not the be-all end-all of that, but it's a very important central part of it. Hmm. Dude, I love talking to you. Uh, collagen. So what then? I know you've written in the past about glycine, which is one yeah. of the most abundant amino acids in you know collagen. Um, what are your feelings on collagen? And I guess just you know more broadly supporting collagen synthesis in the body. We've already talked obviously about about riboflavin, but in just in terms of supplements, because that's actually something that I have not yet talked about on the podcast previously. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your perspective? So the the main benefit there's two main benefits to consuming collagen. One is that collagen is about a third glycine and it has very low methionine. Methionine is an amino acid that increases our needs for glycine and it's found in all proteins besides collagen. There's a tiny amount of collagen, but like plant so plant protein has some, lentils, peas and stuff like that. Um, if you eat a mix of vegan proteins, you're getting let's say you're getting level one of methionine then you eat animal protein especially eggs and dairy so even a lacto-vegetarian is getting plenty of this but but also um you know just animal flesh Mm -hmm. animal protein in general we could say is 2x level of methionine Mm -hmm. so you go from vegan to animal and you're doubling your methionine intake but you're not really doing anything to your glycine intake and so what happens is your your glycine status declines and one, one way that I really like to think about this is think about what our ancestors did, right? Go back to that, that value of seeing what our ancestors did. To the proportion that they ate animals, they ate the whole animal. So 
you can find ancestral diets that were low in animal products and ones that were high in animal products, but the ones that were high in meat were high in all the collagenous tissues that went along with the meat, the bones and skin and connective tissues and tendons. Right? You can see this, I mean, you really see this in New York now. You go to go to a, a Vietnamese place, go to a ramen place, go to like pretty much any Asian place that's actually like making authentic cuisine that's drawing principles from those Asian countries it has like tendon soup and things yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. you know. Um, and so, and so um, our, our big problem is that on a muscle meat heavy diet on the, you know, the skinless boneless chicken breast, yeah. which is terrible for the chickens themselves because they grow over, they grow like from an ethical perspective, yeah, you yeah. breathe it, you know, the, your audience knows that, right? Yeah. That's, that is the diet that raises, maximally raises your needs for glycine, doesn't provide it. So collagen supplements come from this being able to provide a lot of glycine, they're one third glycine, You're being able to provide all that glycine, very little methionine, so they are the source of glycine. Uh, collagen supplements and collagen rich foods like bone broth. Um, and then also, Collagen specifically breaks down into collagen peptides that are partially synthesized collagen and will generate collagen at a much higher rate and a much higher proportion than the individual amino acids will. So if you want to increase collagen, if your aim is to increase collagen synthesis in your skin or your joints, collagen supplements are the best way to do that. If your aim is only to replete the glycine, then a glycine supplement would be adequate. Glycine supplement would also be would also be less expensive and a glycine supplement would also be sweeter and I am not going to claim that glycine tastes just like sugar it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a I I um I made some some cinnamon toast that was sweetened with glycine <laughs> and I let my girlfriend take a, a part of it and she liked it at first and then she got a little bit horrified and she was like what did you do to that it was like it was like it's sugar and then it turned into something else like there's <laughs> there's definitely a a unique glycine specific flavor but it's 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 sort of like stevia it's like it's off sugar a little bit that if you mix it with the right thing it tastes good right mm. so like i can put glycine in my coffee and it's like stevia is a little better sugar is is even better but but it does the trick um but anyway so here's the application so from human studies we know that three grams of glycine before bed helps both falling asleep and the quality of the sleep during sleep it works by lowering your core body temperature. Hmm. I actually, when I'm in, I'm very sensitive to temperature. And when I feel like I'm in a position where I'm not going to make the bedroom as cool as I want it to be, I will often like take six grams of glycine. And I feel anecdotally like it helps compensate for temperature a little bit. Wow. Um, but the ideal thing is to sleep in a cool room and, you know, and if you need additional help, take the glycine. And then before, uh, with a meal, three to five grams of glycine has been shown to stabilize blood sugar, including in diabetics. Um, And then before a workout, if you're specifically trying to improve joint health, gelatin has been studied. I would expect hydrolyzed collagen to have the same benefit. Um, But because we're trying to increase collagen synthesis in the joints, we use gelatin or collagen, not glycine powder. And taking 15 grams of gelatin with 50 milligrams of vitamin C 30 minutes before you work out has been shown to working out increases blood flow and joint fluid movement. And so shoves all that 
collagen peptides into the joints and increases collagen synthesis in the joints. We don't have clinical benefits shown in studies like it decreases joint pain or it reverses yeah. joint problems, but basically we have preliminary data suggesting it might. Now, one last thing. In schizophrenics, 60 grams of glycine per day have been used to have antipsychotic effects. Wow. What's interesting about that is that mathematical modeling suggests that we fall short of our needs of, for glycine between 10 and 60 grams a day, depending on our collagen turnover rates. You can probably bring that collagen turnover rate down by the things we were talking about before, like optimizing oxidative stress. Yeah. But what's remarkable to me is that range, 10 to 60 grams, is what's mathematically modeled for us to fall short of. What are the amounts that I just told you? Well, what would you take if you got three grams of glycine before bed and you got three grams of glycine before each meal? It's like 12 grams of glycine. If you just did the meals to stabilize your blood sugar, it's around 10 grams of glycine. Mm. 60 grams in, uh, for schizophrenics, antipsychotics. Like this, the, the, the numbers around clinical benefit are so strikingly similar to the mathematical modeling of how, fall, how short we fall in our, in our needs it that I just find that like completely remarkable that it lines up that way. Yeah, makes. T- I mean, and so and our needs go up with the more methionine that we consume yeah. in our protein. Yep. And but it's important to recognize that like methionine is one of the essential amino acids. So we need methionine. The answer is not to eat less methionine. It's is it? Yeah. So this that's interesting. Like I used to when I when I was a professor of nutrition, I had a I had a lecture on this, and I would always use it as a thought experiment to look through the biochemical pathways and see what if you were trying to balance your methionine and glycine, would you rather do it? with a lot of methionine and a lot of glycine or would you rather do it by restricting your methionine so you didn't need as much glycine so what's interesting is vegans do it one way and those the tail people do it the other way they're doing the same thing they're both balancing their methionine and glycine that's Mm -hmm. probably really critical to lifespan longevity and various things like that the question is which is better and so you can make a case that having more of both is better because methionine is needed to synthesize glutathione, for example. Hmm. Glutathione is the master antioxidant of the cell, master detoxifier, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, you, I mean, you do. So the thing is, vegans will get enough methionine to, to satisfy what the RDAs suggest are basic needs for methionine. The question is, what's better for glutathione status? And what's better for other, you know, what's better? You're going to get more sulfate when you eat more methionine, providing you eat enough molybdenum, which is another topic. Um, but sulfate is used for detoxification, it's used for hormone metabolism, and it's used for cardiovascular protection and for joint protection, right? The proteoglycans in your joints are... We have people out there that are taking supplements of joint fluid, wow. which contain these sulfur-based compounds that we, that we require sulfur amino acids, methionine and cysteine to come into the diet to take. And so it's like... Um, it's like you, yeah, you can restrict methionine, so you need less glycine, but is that the way to get optimal cardiovascular protection and joint protection from the proteoglycans? Is that the optimal way to get glutathione? Is that the optimal way to get taurine, which is also made from these amino acids? Is that the optimal way to get sulfate for your detoxification and for your hormone metabolism? Or... Are you going to do it the vegan way and then wind up taking uh, hyaluronic acid supplements and conjoint and glucosamine sulfate supplements and MSM and uh, taurine and you know and uh, magnesium sulfate and like just make up for you know 
So I think my opinion is it's probably better to err on the side of getting both of those. Mm -hmm. But I think that if people are very prone to to self-justification, so a lot of people hear that and they're like, well, I can put collagen in my coffee and I can eat all the bacon I want and I can just like mostly eat steak and they don't actually balance that well. Hmm. I mean, you think about traditional diets, what did we what did we balance be- between the muscle meat and the skin and bones? It was like 50% of an animal yeah. is collagenous tissue. Yeah. It's like half and half. Well, I mean, but I guess if you're like if you're eating a diet that's high in muscle meat, which is very typical in the the way that we consume meat in the western world, adding some collagen is probably going to be better than nothing. Than like not having more bone oh, broth or not sure, eating. Oh, for sure, for right? sure, for sure. I just think that even most people who are conscious of this somewhat, or maybe significantly underestimate just what they need for balance. Yeah. And a vegan doesn't really have to worry about it. Like right. a vegan does need to worry about whether they're getting enough protein. Contrary to all the memes about how they get it from broccoli. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they, you know, there's plenty of things that a vegan needs to worry about, but getting too much methionine relative to glycine isn't one of them right like the methionine to glycine balance in in plant protein is actually really good Hmm. and what i what i did is um i created a uh we can put the link in the show notes also if you google master john balancing methionine and glycine i created a database that has the methionine glycine ratios in foods where you can just search and sort Hmm. and it also has some recommendations on uh how to you know how to balance those and those the recommendations in that database are basically try to achieve the balance that a vegan would have um and so it's it's sort of like uh it's sort of like um the idea is the ancestral way to to do things is to eat plants or to eat the whole animal and you can vary how much plant and how much whole animal you eat but we really shouldn't be selecting out the muscle meats and most of us are even when we have bone broth, we are not balancing to the degree of that choice between plant versus whole animal. Yeah. We're making ourselves feel good by getting a little bit of animal parts that are muscle meats. Yeah. And eating a lot of muscle meat. That's what most of us are doing. Yeah. That's what I mean. Even I tend to do that. You know? Oh, wait. I have to say this. So the downside to collagen is that um, there, there are biochemical pathways where we can take portions of of the collagen peptide and turn them into oxalate. And so someone that is at high risk for kidney stones um, should should be careful with collagen and shouldn't OD on it without doing some lab work around that. Hmm. So like, you know, a standard urinalysis is gonna have your, whether you have calcium oxalate crystals in your urine, if that's high, maybe you're dehydrated, but maybe you have a calcium oxalate problem. If you have, and so like, do your annual physical and get a urinalysis, like right step one. Yeah, <laughs> and there's and there are so many people in the alternative health world who get like I have clients who get um, quarterly get these really expensive pa- panels and are spending thousands of dollars per quarter on lab testing, and I'm like, what was your blah blah blah? What was your blood urea nitrogen? And they're like, oh, I haven't gotten a metabolic panel in six years. You haven't gotten the twenty nine dollar thing that that every conventional doctor will give you at your annual <laughs> physical, you know, um, and so. Anyway, so so um, so people who are at high risk either because they have kidney stones or they their urinalysis shows calcium oxalate crystals, or if you're proactive, just measure your blood oxalate levels. If this is if the, if you're if you're an optimizer, um, but if that's an issue for you, you may need to um, reduce collagen. Or my suspicion is you need more B six hmm. um, to be able to pr- to process the collagen without generating oxalate. But I don't I don't want to give the impression that everyone out there should go take you know 
50 grams of collagen a day and not be aware of this. Yeah. How big of a concern are oxalates for you? Because you touched on them. I mean, like, do you eat spinach, which apparently... So, interesting thing. My mom has had a kidney stone, and her oxalate levels were through the roof. Hmm. And I had her go on a diet that was as close to zero oxalate as we could get it. And I had her stop her collagen. I had her her stop her vitamin C, which can uh, which can also be metabolized into oxalate. I had her increase her vitamin B six, which helps lower oxalate levels. I did everything I could think of, and her oxalate levels didn't change. Hmm. And so I'm I'm I I don't know what the answer to that is, except that my guess is she needed even more B6. Hmm. I think I was being too conservative about B6. Yeah. I found out, I found out recently, I was getting these, I was getting some twitching problems, and um, I found that I need 25 to 50 milligrams of B6 as P5P to stop the twitching. And I need whatever amount stops the twitching, I need 25 milligrams more than that to start dreaming. A lot of people report um, consistently. Everyone who takes high B six has like really intense lucid dreams. I need fifty to seventy five milligrams of B six to have dreams that I remember. Wow! And so I think there's a lot of things um, metabolically, dietarily, environmentally that are making people need more B six than than they might think. And so this, to me, this is a totally open topic. But I'm. My experience right now is biasing me towards thinking that it's way too simplistic to think that dietary oxalates are the things you need to avoid to avoid having high levels in your blood and urine. Yeah. One of the things that I always wonder about whenever I get into these conversations about, you know, that seem to sway towards like, you know, a higher com- consumption of meat being beneficial is I worry about iron levels, especially when, you know, in the context of a male or, you know, perhaps a postmenopausal woman. Do you, it sounds like you eat a lot of riboflavin and liver, you know, iron-containing foods. Do you worry about your iron status? So I worry about my iron status because I'm homozygous for the H63D allele of the hemochromatosis genes, which mm. is the less severe allele, but being homozygous puts me in a position where I could develop clinical hemochromatosis. And I discovered a long time ago that I feel, I discovered kind of by accident that I accumulate too much iron when I don't donate blood and I feel a lot better when I donate blood. But the thing is, so I was, last year I was eating 10 ounces of, of steak per day, and which is, which is a larger than recommended amount of red meat um, and pretty big compared to most people. Um, not compared to Sean Baker, but it's you know it's significant. And I was eating a lot of vegetables and and legumes, like lentils and things like that. So what I found was in Chronometer, my red meat was giving me about eight milligrams of iron a day, which is the RDA. But I was getting about forty-five milligrams of iron a day, and almost all of it was coming from plants. Hmm. So here I am with with H63D allele. I'm getting five to six times the RDA for iron. 80% of it comes from plants, despite eating lots of red meat. I go in and my iron levels are on the low side. I haven't even given wow. blood in two years. Hmm. So why is this? Basically, like I'm of the opinion that the iron in plants is so poorly available that 
And also plant protein inhibits iron absorption. Hmm. And so animal protein facility, and this goes back to the why, why, did the, why do the women who eat liver fix their anemia? So animal protein enhances iron absorption. Plant protein and egg whites inhibit iron absorption. So someone who eats a lot of plants and someone who, eat, who throws their yolks away, eats egg white omelets, is giving themselves anemia, in my hmm. opinion. And then on top of this, in plants... Everything else in plants except vitamin, so vitamin C in plants helps you absorb helps you absorb the iron in, right, in yeah. plants, um, but not in animals. It's irrelevant. But polyphenols in plants um, and oxalates in plants and phytates in in plants all inhibit iron absorption. And the polyphenols act on even on the iron absorption in meat. So I was never eating steak by itself. I was eating <laughs> steak with a bunch of plants. And those plants are full of way more iron than is in the steak, but they're full of iron absorption inhibitors. Wow. So like if I was anemic, I wouldn't be trying I wouldn't be eating lentils. I would be eating a carnivore diet based on red meat, shellfish, and organ meats until the anemia resolved and then I would go back to a normal diet. Well, or at least like eat those foods, you know, like ensure that the bolus is like like that you're eating them basically kind I would of on, just, on an empty stomach. Yeah, but I know what I would do. I'm saying what I would do. I'm okay. not saying everyone who has anemia should do this, but I'm saying like I would consider this like the anemia healing diet. Um, just eat a carnivore diet of red meat, shellfish, and and um, red meat, shellfish, and organ meats until it's fixed. I mean, it would be gone in a few weeks, hmm. right? And and then and then just go and then just go back to fixing normal diet. But but yeah, you're right. Okay, so you don't want to be an extremist. Then what I would do is um, I'd put all my iron-rich foods at I'd, I'd eat I'd eat one meal a day that was mostly iron-rich, uh, mostly those iron-rich animal foods, and then I would put all the plant foods and all the egg whites into some other meal a day. I would yeah. eat two meals a day like that. <laughs> I would put all the plants and egg whites in the in the other meal. Um, the, the, I mean, the thing is, like every nutrient is best absorbed spread out as well. Um, and there, it's it's kind of like dietary patterns are very significant, and, and they're significant because there's so many factors acting in concert. And it's like it's like red meat, shellfish, and organs are all pro iron, anti anemia. They're but they're all pro animal food. Like if you're anemic, you're probably borderline deficient in zinc. You know, mm-hmm. you're probably borderline deficient in certain amino acids. Like it's just you need that that team yeah. right now to and you've probably been eating on the other team for so long hmm. you know so it's interesting so it's like well what i was going to say was if you're at risk for hemochromatosis or if you're you know if you're a male you're not giving blood very frequently i mean this is a great argument to combine which is the recommendation that i make in genius foods to combine your meat with veggies essentially but at the same in the same breath you're also probably um, I mean you're you're inhibiting to some degree the absorption of iron but also probably other minerals as well yeah but um, yeah so this, so what you what I mean I, I'm at risk for iron overload so what would I do what do I do mm-hmm. um, I think that diet should take a back seat to blood donations providing that you qualify for blood donations um, and even if you didn't, I would um, see if you can get a doctor to agree 
like a forward-thinking doctor who agrees on this stuff to to give some phlebotomy treatments. Yeah. Um, because the thing is, like, 90% of your iron is in your blood, in your red blood cells, and no other nutrient is concentrated like that. So losing blood is very specific to iron. Even though you will lose other nutrients, you're, it's so leveraged towards iron that it's way more specific to getting rid of iron than anything you could possibly do with your diet. Mm. I think what you said with diet is a very great idea and should be the mainstay of what you would do with your diet, which is include lots of veggies with your meats. That's a much better idea than restricting iron-rich foods because like I had a client who started restricting iron-rich foods and he we didn't talk about it. He just came in with his blood work and he's like, looks like I'm losing zinc and copper and some other stuff. I'm like, what do you do with your diet? Like, basically, he took the zinc and copper out of his diet because he's trying to take the iron out of his diet, <laughs> yeah. right? And that's, you're going to want, if you're trying, if you're working with chelating or you're working with restricting your dietary foods, you will give yourself other mineral deficiencies. And you're right that, you know, you're right that um, you're going to hurt your zinc status and maybe some other minerals if you're bombarding the iron with, um, with, phytates and oxalates and polyphenols from plant foods but the thing is like your iron is really spread out compared to some of those other minerals mm. so i think a way to do that would be like eat um eat like one eat like two oyster one or two oysters a day separated from those foods but include all those foods with the rest of your animal foods um so like meat and veggies is is most of your diet but you also have like one or two oysters that you eat as a snack on an empty stomach that should offer you full protection against zinc copper and many of those other minerals and it's not going to give you so much iron that it that it will contradict what you're doing around your iron and the rest of your diet yeah it's great advice and for all you guys out there like wondering if you're gonna have to start shucking oysters you can buy like canned oysters which are actually quite delicious yeah i'm a huge fan of those dude well i could talk to you forever man you're like such a wealth of knowledge um one last question before we get to that how can listeners uh find you um on the social web and just remind them again how to get uh the cheat sheet yeah so um so I'm at chrismasterjohnphd.com. I'm Chris Masterjohn on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And um, the two big things people should sign up for are if you're a beginner and you want to get to intermediate, or if you're a nutrition professional who wants a refresher or a little gem of about nutrients that you didn't know about um, that might surprise you, uh, join my free Vitamins and Minerals 101 course. That's a education entertainment slash um, refreshing slash getting you from point beginner to point intermediate in your understanding of, of how nutrients work in the body. Uh, there's about 10,000 people on that. And if you look at the Facebook post for it, there's 1,400 comments on it so far. And virtually all of those comments are like, oh, my God, I can't believe how good this course is. That's awesome. So, so definitely check that out. Um, and then testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet. This is a much more practical, like do the chore of finding out exactly what you need in your diet and fix it in the most effective way possible. And so that is, it's uh, less about education and entertaining education, all about how the things work. And it's more about figure out exactly what you need to do right now to fix things and fix those things as quickly as possible. And so that 
Um, you can get it at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash genius and use the discount code genius to bring the price down from $30 to $24, which saves 20% of it. Crucial. All right, uh, Dr. Master John, um, what does it mean to you to live like a genius? I feel like I might have asked you that on the first one, but I like to kind of like bring, <laughs> bring it back because, you know, your answer may have changed over time. Yeah, okay. So um, I just read John Beebe's book, Reservoirs of Consciousness, um, and it's about Jungian personality types. And my current idea of, uh, so I put my, my idea of what it means to be a genius on my wall in a vision board. Hmm. And at the center of it is an eight-petaled flower. And for, I picked this picture. I Google image searched eight-petaled flower. And, uh, and I found one that has four of the petals very visible and has four that are kind of curled up and hard to see. And this represents um, the four types of consciousness that we have in our, in our conscious stack hmm. and the four types that make up our shadow functions. Whoa. And so, the per so the, I view a genius life as optimally developing all eight fragments of my consciousness and digging deep into my unconsciousness and, and surfacing them. So I'll give you give you a couple examples. I'll try to run through this really quickly because okay. I know we're short on time. So my leading function is introverted thinking, which is theory building. My second co-pilot function is extroverted intuition, which is exploration and seeing new possibilities. I was hmm. talking about it before. That together makes me a very good scientist because I see all the possibilities and then I use introverted with extroverted intuition and I use introverted thinking to make a mental model of them and make a theory out of them. My introverted sensing is my memory of all my past experiences. It's my third thing. And my extroverted feeling, um, which is my girlfriend's dominant function, is my inferior function. It is conscious, but it's a source of shame and embarrassment quite often. But it also is what animates me and makes me feel alive. Mm. Um, underneath that are things that are active in me, but they tend to be unconscious. They tend to act as defense mechanisms, and it's my job to use my inferior function, extroverted feeling, to open up my subconscious and bring these out to life into conscious control over the rest of the next 50 years of my life, hopefully. And that includes extroverted thinking, which is the opposite of me. That's what people use in business. That's effectiveness. Hmm. That's figuring out how to make this thing make money. I've been studying that for the last few years and it's hard, but, and, I, and I'm 37, right? So like I figured out how to tap into that after 34 years of life, and it and I put a lot of effort into it. It still takes me a lot of effort to realize that I should put up organized systems and things like that, right? Mm. Um, but it's been hugely beneficial for me to tap into that. Um, introverted intuition is is um, is also a subconscious function for me. That's the realm of sudden insights. It's also the realm of mystical experience. I'll get into that in a, some other day. But if you dig deep into my stories, I've actually been kind of hurt by the way that I've interpreted um, seemingly mystical experiences in my past because it's so unconscious and because I sort of let it control me rather than hmm. really processing in the right way. Um, extroverted sensing is experience, and it's unconscious for me too. A lot of people think of it as a sensory experience, but it's also the realm of objective facts. It's seeing the things that are right in front of you. And that's in an unconscious position in me where I can kind of get tricked by it. So I strive really hard to be objective, 
But you know, when I see possibilities and I have my own theory about it, if I don't have someone at the table who can point out and say, you're missing this fact, you're missing this fact, you're missing this fact, I'm gonna get caught up in my own theories and lose sight of reality. So I need to be aware that that's an unconscious function that tends to play tricks on me. Mm. And my introverted feeling is my core convictions. These are the things like, uh, like um, maybe I feel really strongly about my politics and that's kind of led me astray. Or maybe I feel really strongly about I have this core need for autonomy. I can't explain it, but I'm just going to quit my job out of nowhere, which happened to work out really well for me, but could have been the destroyer of me. Mm -hmm. um, and so being in touch with like, why do I feel these core feelings and how do I process them in a conscious way? I think being, being a genius life is re realizing all these things that operate in the shadows and are really important to your life but you tend to ignore and doing psychological work to bring them all up to be, really become a complete person in every way i love that just remind us what the book is that so this this book is by john beeb and it's called reservoirs of consciousness um i would say uh if someone has no idea about these things a good starting place for them would be a book called building blocks of psychological type and that's by um, let me let me pull this up super quickly. Um, so uh, I'll give a few books. So uh, Gifts Differing by Isabel Briggs Myers is a very good starting place. Um, Personality Hacker is a super practical like light read. And um, oh, I have the physical book. I forget the authors, but Building Blocks of Personality Type is a very good introduction to. Mm like super practical it's like bullet pointed examples of what it's like to use introverted thinking hmm. and they, they they put people in focus groups and um and they have and they, they would just like give them a project and see how they would respond to it and it's like what is a bunch of introverted thinkers like what do they say yeah. it was so funny there was so i'm terrible with time constraints deadlines like i cannot operate with deadlines <laughs> and they they um they put a bunch of introverted thinkers in a focus group where they they put this thing that had deadlines and they came back and they, they said that the the time constraints created so much stress for them that they trashed it and they turned it into a different game where they would all each make an argument to defend about something. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it was just really funny reading this book. Wow. But the one that I was just talking about um, is by John Beebe and it's called Reservoirs of Consciousness. I don't think it's a good first introduction to this stuff, but it's a good second or third book. And um, John Beebe is one of the like top level people in the world to mm. read about this stuff. He's actually the site, the, um, he's the clinical grandson of Carl Jung in wow. a way. And so clinical great grandson of Freud, mm. if you want to count, uh, Freud tried to make Jung his, uh, his, his uh, protege, and yeah. then Jung was like, screw you, man, <laughs> I got my own theory. Um, but Beeb trained under a guy who trained directly under Jung. Oh. So, uh, yeah. Damn. Right at the source. Yeah, super interesting. Cool. We'll check that out. Well, dude, thank you so much. That was a wonderful round two. Lots of yeah, information man. shared, and I'm already excited for round three. Yeah. To all you guys out there in podcast land, thank you so much for listening. Take a moment to share this episode of the show. Spread the word about the genius life tag your favorite quote from chris or i and uh yeah i will catch you on the next episode peace